Well, this morning on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be turning to the Old Testament. Some of you might be saying, well, that's interesting. I thought the New Testament was where the recorded account of the resurrection happened. Well, it is, but I also want to remind you that when Jesus rose from the dead, he walked with men on the Emmaus Road at the end of Luke. And in his resurrected self, he taught these men all that the scripture had to say. And he said uh, that all of Moses and the prophets were concerning himself. So all of scripture is indeed pointing us to the resurrection Christ. So this morning we're going to be looking at what the prophet Isaiah has to say about this resurrected Christ. And you'll see that printed in your worship guide on pages 12 through 13. We'll be reading all of chapter 25, but I'll be focusing uh, specifically on verses 6 through 8. Let's read together. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord for us. This morning I want to orient us with a picture I saw this week on Facebook. One of our members Uh, posted a picture that was rather profound, one of those pictures that you stop for a moment to consider all that that picture is portraying. And that picture was this. It was a picture of a Ukrainian couple in the city of Kharkiv, which we've been hearing about, that has been bombed relentlessly. And it was not a picture of suffering, per se, but it was a picture of beauty, It was a picture of this Ukrainian couple standing in their wedding garments on a pile of rubble embracing one another. A picture of beauty amongst the ashes, a picture of hope even amidst death. This picture of a new union 
of a bride and a groom embracing one another, I'm sure gave many a, a glimpse of good news, a glimpse of hope amidst the death that surrounded them. You see, you and I are consistently inundated with images of decay, of death, of what's wrong with this world. And more than images, experiences both past and present of the effects of sin upon us and our families and our loved ones in this world. And so this morning, we're not going to shy away from these realities, but we're going to lean into the fact that Jesus has a word of hope for us here. We all need an image, a captivating picture of beauty amidst the pain to sustain us. And so this morning, the message from Isaiah for us, if you're in Christ, is that you can face life's darkest moments because Christ has swallowed up death forever. You can face life's darkest valleys and moments because Christ has swallowed up death forever. And if you think this morning uh, of the role of mountaintop experiences in your life, those experiences that have stuck with you, have been formative, have been high points where you uh, have experienced something profound, this morning we're given three mountaintop experiences. These are our points These experiences are one, a family feast, two, the glory of unveiled faces, and three, the Father's favor to his children. So first, a family feast. Just a bit of context here as we jump into the prophet Isaiah. You see, Isaiah was writing in his time, which was the 8th century BC, not before COVID, but before Christ, a long time ago. And he was writing to Judah, this remnant of people remaining faithful to Yahweh, amidst a hostile Assyrian surrounding nation. He was writing to them words from the Lord. He was a prophet, both foretelling, saying, this is what's happening, this is what you should do, and foretelling, saying, this is what is to come. This morning, we have a foretelling, a vision of what is to come. You know, the whole message of Isaiah could be summed up uh, by this, a vision of hope in the coming Messiah, in a new world where all things will be made well. That's the message of Isaiah, and we see that really clearly in this chapter, don't we? So our focus will be on verses 6 through 8. But leading up to that, we've seen a, a vision of God's saving judgment upon these ruthless people, upon these ruthless nations. We've also seen God's pity upon the poor and needy. So Isaiah is here giving a a cosmic vision of the way things will be, of God's worldwide rule at the end of the age. It's almost as if Isaiah is giving a glimmer of hope, like that picture of the Ukrainian couple, a picture of how things should be, a bit of hope during the storm. And in the middle of this vision, we have these most profound and personal and beautiful words given from God. And the first mountaintop experience we're given is that of a family feast. Let's read verse 6 together again. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So what is this, this mountain that's in view If we look at the previous chapter, and if we look in the rest of Isaiah, by the mountain, he's referring to Mount Zion. You know, mountains are significant in Scripture. 
They're high places where God uh, meets man or God reveals himself. We think of Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus where Moses received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And we saw the Lord's glory displayed there. But Mount Sinai was untouchable. If people drew near to it, they would die. That's not so with the mountain that's in view. There's an invitation to this mountain to come up to feast. You know, throughout Scripture, Mount Zion is referred to as the New Jerusalem, the place where the the permanent temple will dwell. And in Hebrews 12, we see Mount Zion being referred to what? The church, Christ's body on earth, the New Jerusalem. So to summarize, Mount Zion symbolizes both the present and the future dwelling of God with his people. And what happens on this mountain? A feast, a feast fit for kings, which is open to all peoples. It's not an exclusive club. And at this feast is rich food and well-aged wine. And it re-emphasizes that this rich food is, is food full of marrow, the richest of nutrients, and wine well-refined. This is not the, the cheap $3 bottle and simple cut of meat. This is the Hall's Chop House filet mignon and their reserve wine. This is the good stuff. The Lord spares no expense on this mountain. You know, this is not just for ethnic Israel. This is for all peoples, all nations, tribes, and tongues. This was always the vision for God with his people Israel to be a kingdom of priests to the nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles to welcome in the sojourner. But on this mountain, there's, there's both. We see both a radical inclusivity and a radical exclusivity. And let me unpack that. You know, a couple weeks back, my wife, Christiana, and I had the chance to go to Charleston for two nights by ourselves without kids. That in itself was a royal treat. But we are fairly new to the state of South Carolina. And uh, we've been to Charleston a handful of times, but still, I mean, there's so many restaurants there to choose from. It's just amazing how many are crammed in that little peninsula. So we began to figure out we better have a plan for where we want to eat, where we want to feast. So as it happens, we have a neighbor in our neighborhood who, who uh, oversees a food magazine called Edible. So she hobnobs with all the chefs in Charleston. So uh, we got together with her and she gave us her short list of top recommendations and we were so thankful to be invited in to that society of the best. So we went to Charleston and we took her recommendation and went to a restaurant. And as we got there, uh, we, we made it in without a reservation. We got there, we were given a little table by the window and uh, we began to open up the menu. And we had a couple of reactions. One was, oh my goodness, this is expensive. <laughs> and the second was, I have no idea what these things are. You see, we were both included by virtue of uh, our f- being friends with this neighbor who is a food uh, magazine writer. But there was also an exclusivity. I didn't know what to order. I had to ask 30 questions just to figure out what I wanted. There was kind of an exclusive nature to this restaurant. It was a little different than making a ham sandwich with my kids on the back porch. You see, this feast on Mount Zion we read about was both radically inclusive 
a feast for all peoples, but it was radically exclusive. You know why? Because you had to make it up the mountain. And how do you get up the mountain? This exclusive New Jerusalem, this, this place where God dwells with man. Because there's a feast up there. And I want to be included in that. The question then is, how do you get an invite up to the mountain? Well, the, the answer is that you have to be a friend of the host. You have to be a friend of the one who even owns the mountain. You have to be a friend of, of God himself. You know, in John's gospel in, verses, in chapter 15, verses 15 through 16, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. See, the only way to be a friend of the host, the only way to make it up the mountain, is to be a friend of Jesus and to have knowledge of the Father's love. So before we proceed any further this morning, let's just ask, are you a friend of Jesus? Do you have knowledge of the Father's intimate love for you? You see, the scripture says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to be on that mountain feasting with the Lord. No achievement, no good works, no amount of physical fitness to make it up that mountain will suffice. The only thing that's going to get you up that mountain is faith in Jesus, an acknowledgement that I don't belong there an acknowledgement that all I'm bringing to make it up that mount is a worn-out, dirty self who can't make it up on my own efforts. I need someone to carry me up that mountain all the way. That's what gets you to the feast. Is that what's getting you to the feast? If it's not, then friends, let me gently ask you to consider the death and resurrection of Christ if you have never professed that, then let today be the day that you might know and taste somewhat of this feast with the resurrected Jesus. And if you have professed that and are still striving, pulling up your bootstraps to make it up the mountain, then let, let down the burdens. Be reminded again of, of the lavish grace of Christ that is at this feast. Be reminded that he is carrying you all the way up the mountain to the end. Rest in his grace. So friends, this is the family feast the Lord invites us to consider. And though this is a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, we can have a taste now, which leads to our next point. The next mountaintop experience we see is that of, of unveiled faces. If we look at verses 7 in the beginning of verse 8, we see this. It says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Hiro Onoda was a, a Japanese soldier during World War II who is most famously known for being one of the last men to surrender. He was stationed in the Philippines during World War II, and even though the war ceased, he did not abandon his post. He remained there for 29 years. You know, planes were flying overhead, dropping little pamphlets down saying, the war is done. And Hero thought this was propaganda. Surely not. I'm not going to leave my post. 
It wasn't until his commander, some 20 years later, came to him face to face and relieved him of his duties, where he saw face to face his commander and he knew, okay, I trust this man. The war is done. He surrendered. You see, Hiro Onoda lived under the veil of war until he saw his commander face to face and realized the war was over. You see, on Mount Zion, our text says that the Lord will swallow up a veil that is covering all people. And what is that covering or veil? Well, we're told at the beginning of verse 8 that it's death itself, the pale of death that is hanging over, that is covering all people. You see, the imagery of a veil uh, is, is something you wear over your face when you're mourning, something to cover over your sadness. And the deepest mourning is always a result of, of death. The greatest enemy, the result of the curse of Genesis 3 that we all feel and deal with. So what this covering or veil refers to then is, is the pale of death. And you know what glorious thing is in view here? It's this language of swallowed up. You know, when the, the Hebrew Bible uses the word swallowed up, it, it, it draws upon the image of the earth opening up and swallowing up people into the grave. So when the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah and he says, I will swallow up this pail of death, this veil, I'll swallow it up forever, it's vanquished, it's gone. The death of death, it's swallowed up, disappeared. This is why I'm preaching this passage on Easter Sunday. Because as we were just assured in those words from 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul knew this text in Isaiah and he pulled it out at the highest point when he's talking about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, where, O death, is your sting? Where, grave, are you? The victory is Christ because he has swallowed up death in victory. The apostle Paul knew the profundity of this text and placed it very carefully in 1 Corinthians 15. And though Isaiah was writing in the 8th century B.C., Ultimately, this points us to the resurrected Christ. He walked out of the tomb and swallowed up death forever. It points us straight to an empty tomb. Christ truly died, and he truly rose. The account is settled. The history is there. If Christ did not rise, then all we're doing and talking about is, is foolishness and vain. But it's true. What Isaiah was prophesying about is verifiably true in the person of Jesus Christ who bodily died and bodily rose and invites us into the same. And you know, he promises his children a share in this resurrection, in this feast, both now inwardly by faith and bodily when we die, we will rise again and have unveiled faces. The pale of death that hangs over us, the sadness we feel when loved ones die, the sadness we feel at funerals, that's just gonna be gone. That veil of death will be, will be no more. That's the promise for believers. So how does this verse benefit us now? 
How does the realization that Christ has swallowed up death benefit us in our many sorrows and griefs? So the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits of, uh, of the resurrection for believers. The first fruits uh, is that uh, of the tasting of the resurrection, the first fruit, the things that come first, and then the full harvest follows. And so with the first fruits, Christ is giving us a share of his resurrection. And if you believe in him, you are united to him by faith, then you are raised with him. Objectively, it's real. You are raised with him. You're seated with him, as Ephesians says. You share in his resurrection now. I love what Richard Gaffin says. He says, believers in Christ will never be more resurrected in their inner man than they already are. What a profound, wonderful reality. And so what this means for you and I in our sorrows, in our valleys, in our sins, is that you both have the hope and the power to get out of bed the next day. You have the hope and the power of resurrection alive inside of you. Whether you existentially feel that or not, it's true, objectively true. And so what this means is that you can face tomorrow. You know, one of our members here keeps asking me, uh, Andrew, when are we going to sing Bill Gaither's uh, Because He Lives? When are we going to sing that? Well, we're not singing it today, but here's how it goes. It says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. So that can get you out of bed tomorrow. Because he lives. And so for you, how can the reality that death is swallowed up forever and you're raised with Christ bolster you up this week? Is your life bleak? Are you feeling empty most days, hopeless? Jesus is offering you a graceful reminder that you share in his resurrection. That new life has sprung up within you. That a glory awaits and can infuse your earthly labors. You know, directly after Paul says death is swallowed up in victory, he then quickly goes to our labors. He says, because of this, your labor is not in vain. What you do matters eternally. All of this flows out of the resurrection. It's not as if we just do things that are going to be rubbish. Because of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. Getting up to go to your job, nurturing your children, caring about the details of life is not in vain for believers. Are you feeling the effects of sin in your body? Are you growing old? Have you received a difficult diagnosis? Have you been struggling with various issues of mental illness, of anxiety or depression? Are you tired of the battle? Then know afresh, dear saint, that one day all this will be gone. One day you'll be given a new body, a new mind that can see things clearly and can worship fully. Are you struggling hard with sin this morning, with addiction, with the various passions of the flesh? Dear sinner, claim the resurrection power of Christ this week. Before you dive headlong into something destructive, cry out in faith to God, saying, Father, help me believe that I am resurrected with you. I don't want to go down this pathway of death. I don't want to go to another glory that will suck the life rather than give true life. Father, I claim 
your resurrection power in my life. And if you're coming in this morning knowing that you have blown it this week, know again that because the resurrection is true, if you confess your sins, he offers you full forgiveness. The resurrection was for sinners who need ongoing renewal. Lastly, are you sorrowful? Are you beaten up? Then this next point this morning is especially for you. Lastly, this morning on the mountain, we see the Father's favor. Let's look at verse 8. After Isaiah said, he will swallow up death forever, he says, And then the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's the same Lord who swallows up death that wipes tears from his children's faces and takes away their reproach. God is a God of power, but he's also a personal God. It just doesn't get more personal, more fatherly to have your child sit on your lap after hurting themselves, after feeling sad, after having been bullied, after having experienced something painful to wipe the tear from their eye. That's what the Father wants to do for each one of you. More than that, he wants to take away your reproach. You know what reproach is? It's to show disapproval. Or it's to make someone, someone's failings more apparent, to rub it in their face. And the opposite is true here. The Father wants to show you his favor by taking away the reproach. He doesn't want to rub anything in your face. He wants to wipe your face clean. If you're here this morning feeling the sorrow over sin or sickness or mourning, then latch on to this vision afresh. Your struggles will cease. Sin has an expiration date. Christ has swallowed up death. You know, the opening lines of the Heidelberg Catechism state it best when it asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it answers, that I'm not my own, but I belong both body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair, here the tenderness, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. So friends in Christ, hear the Father's favor and grace towards you on this Resurrection Sunday. Your soul and body belong to him, are kept safe forever. The tyranny of the devil has no power in the end. And he'll carry you to the end and wipe the tears from your faces. Friends in Christ, you can face life's darkest moments and valleys because Christ has swallowed up death forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the deep hope we have in this text that you have dealt with the greatest enemy that we can face tomorrow, that we can face our sin, that we can face our sickness, that we can face our sorrow because you live and you live in us 
and we are seated with you in the heavenly places. And one day we will feast with you with the best things possible. And we will sit and have our tears wiped by the Father, the King of heaven. All glory, praise, and honor be to you this Easter Sunday. May you go with us this week and keep us in tune with this resurrection power by your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.